Frank Network. Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Well, Happy New Year. Here we're 10 days in. Are you keeping your resolutions? Are things going well for you? Have you told anybody what your resolution is? Uh, If you listened to our last episode, you'll know that we talked about how to keep all of those resolutions and, and how to plan. Now, my hope is, is that you're going into 2022 with a new perspective, a new start, if you will, that we can understand that what happened in 2021 and even 2022 are a thing of the past, and we now have this new opportunity to start over. And many of us may be looking at the situation before us as being grim. I I know today we got a notification that uh, my son's elementary school is shutting down due to COVID. And it just seemed like we were getting our head above water and bam, it all happened again. But I want to ensure to you today that tomorrow is a new day. We have a new start tomorrow. If you fail today, it's okay because you have tomorrow to look forward to. You say, well, Doc Brian, tomorrow is going to be the same old thing. Well, you know what? If you go into it with that attitude, it it probably is. But wake up tomorrow morning, reflect a little bit on what you would like to accomplish. Look at your goals with a positive attitude. Think, how can I make today better? And if you start your day like that, I assure you, it just gets better. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Now today we're going to do something a little different. Now back in 2001, there was a song that came out by Toby Keith, some of you may remember this, and the title was, I Want to Talk About Me. Uh, the course says, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. It's pretty Southern here. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, but occasionally I want to talk about me. And so today I thought what would be good uh, would be for us to talk about me. Some of you may have listened to my TikToks or my Instagram reels or even some Facebook posts and the podcast here and thought, well, who really is Doc Bryan? And so for the second episode of 2022, I thought it would be appropriate for me to answer that question. And so that's what we're going to do here today. Now, remember always, if you have a question that you would like to submit to us, you want us to uh, answer for you. All you have to do is call in to our voicemail, and you can get your questions answered. All you have to do is call in to 910-777-7239. That's 910-777-7239. You can leave your messages there, and 
quite possibly hear your question live here on our podcast. So let's talk about me. I was born in the early 80s. I'll just say the early 80s. It was 83, but the early 80s in a small town of Boonville, Arkansas. Now, Boonville is one of those towns, if you're traveling down Highway 10, uh, you don't blink because you'll miss it. Uh, There is just not a whole lot of people there. I I went to school in a little city called Magazine, and for years, the population sign was 799. We lived there in, in Magazine for several years before we moved back to Boonville, and I completed high school and elementary school and high school there. You notice there was not a middle school. Graduated in 2001 at Magazine High School. Now, growing up was not all glitz and glamour. Uh, We come from a very poor family. I remember I was probably six, seven years old, and my mother had had back surgery, and we just didn't have the money, and they ended up filing bankruptcy. And we went into to live into my grandmother's old home, and it had sat empty for probably five or six years. She was still living. She had just moved into uh, an assisted living type of apartment so that uh, she didn't have so much to care for. And we moved in there, and and it was you know a home that was built in the 30s, 40s, and there wasn't any insulation. And I remember we drove to Fort Smith, which was the big city near us, Oh, about an hour away. And we went to the Whirlpool plant. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Whirlpool, it's they make refrigerators and washing machines and dryers and small appliances. And we would go to their dumpster and we would find these old refrigerator boxes and dryer and washer boxes. And we brought that home and we used little tack nails and we tack that up on the walls as a type of insulation. And so in the wintertime, we had one little gas stove that was kind of in the living room, and we would take like electric blankets and, and large heavy blankets and put them over the doorways in the house so that we could have heat. And we would use electric blankets when we slept uh, to try to stay comfortable. But thankfully in Arkansas, it doesn't stay cold for too long uh, in the winter. Uh, now, last year in 2021, of course, we had snowbageddon, as, as it was called here. It, it snowed for several days. It stayed in the teens and 20s for several days, and, and uh, we had snow on the ground several several inches for uh, many days. But we don't typically get that kind of snow. In the summertime, we would have a water cooler. Uh, if you aren't familiar with that, that's where you have water in this air conditioner type thing. There's a big fan. The water goes through uh, in front of this fan, and it cools the air as it comes out. The only problem with a water cooler is they're, they're typically used down in South Texas, where there is the humidity is quite low. But in Arkansas, it would cause mold and mildew and all those kind of things, but it kept us cool. And my dad and I would go to the uh, grocery store or the convenience store, and we'd buy a block of ice, and we would put it inside, and that would make the water cooler. So about the time that I was 9 or 10 years old, my dad had a grandma seizure. And uh, I remember that day just very clearly 
that he was he was seizing, but he we had first responders come and and uh, he was fighting them off and and come to find out a year or two prior he had had a stroke that that we didn't know about and the seizure enacted all of his uh, stroke issues and so he had to do things like uh, relearn how to to live from a very elementary level within this my dad became very easily agitated to the point of where sometimes most of the time, I guess I should say, it ended up with physical abuse. And I remember one time we were still living in in my grandmother, my nanny Shep's home, and my mother had fixed uh, pinto beans, fried potatoes, and cornbread. And my dad liked to take that all together, put ketchup on it, mix it all together in kind of a soup consistency and eat it. But he wouldn't have it in a bowl. He would have it on a plate. And uh, I remember my mother gave him his his meal, and uh, he said it had too much salt on it, and he broke that plate over her head. And, and I just remember how traumatizing that was to me to see that take place. And as I recall, my sister and I packed a bag, and we went and sat in the car because we knew my mother wasn't going to put up with that, and she was definitely going to leave him this time because there was something so bad about that 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 we just were not going to get past. And about an hour went by, and my mother come out to the car, and she told us to go back in and get ready for bed. And from there, the abuse was progressively worse. I remember on many occasions waking up in the morning to go to school with and by my dad hitting me across the chest or back with a belt. And it was just pure chaos we didn't have money, so I wore every day sweatpants to school. In the summertime, we would cut off those sweatpants to make shorts. And I remember being made fun of as a kid uh, because I didn't own a pair of blue jeans. And as it were, I wouldn't have those sweatpants if it wasn't for the ministerial alliance that gave us clothes at Christmas. And so growing up, then the physical abuse came into play, but then there was some sexual and emotional abuse as well. And and I remember being in high school thinking that I wasn't worth very much. In my teen years, I got a job working at a local gas station. And one of the very first times that I ran into a mental health issue that was not my own was this young lady came in to the, the convenience store late one night. She got a bottle of bleach and she set it down on the counter and paid for it. And then in front of me, she popped the bleach open and she drank the whole jug. She said she just didn't want to live. And I, I remember thinking, how terrible, how terrible would your life have to be to not want to live anymore? And so as the years rolled on, I graduated from high school and, and I went to Arkansas Tech University uh, in Russellville for, for my first year. And while there, I was a vocal music major, of all things. Uh, My plan was to be a high school uh, music teacher. And uh, the dorm that I lived in, I ended up having black mold, and I had a severe, severe infection uh, for months, and I wasn't able to sing, and so I had to drop out. 
being in school and working a job, I came into contact with a with a man who was the lead singer for the cathedral's court, or excuse me, the cathedrals. I wish uh, for the apostles' quartet out of Little Rock, and I interviewed for the position, and I got the position of singing baritone in this gospel quartet. And so, after singing with them about a year and a half, I guess I decided that things just college wasn't for me. And I went and I substitute taught in the same high school that I had been in. And it took one day to convince me that teaching was not for me either. So I began to look for other singing opportunities. And I came across a quartet that was newly forming in Wilmington, North Carolina. I drove to Wilmington, which was about Oh, 14, 15 hours from where I lived and applied for the position, interviewed, tried out, and they hired me as their lead singer. And within that time, I came back home, got all my stuff, and I moved to Wilmington. No plan, didn't know where I was going to live, didn't know how I was going to eat, didn't know how I was going to make enough money to do things, because this quartet was a what is known as a weekend warrior quartet, where you leave out on a Friday and you get home very early on Monday morning. And so the man that owned the group was the chief police. And I started riding along and, and uh, really caught the bug, I guess, if you will, uh, to want to help people. And so I went through the police academy and I became a police officer. Nowhere in my younger years would that have ever been anywhere on the radar. And Most people who found out that I had done that, they didn't believe it because that's just not the type of person I was. I do not enjoy confrontation. To this day, I do not enjoy confrontation. And so we sang. uh, We were signed to a multi-platinum label and did several recordings. Uh, We traveled all within the United States, and we did some overseas things as well and had a lot of fun doing that. And as, as some of you know, uh, I was involved in a, in a shooting, and I, I'm not going to go into that much other than to just say that because uh, this time of year is particularly hard uh, with my PTSD, and so I think the healthiest point of this is to not talk about that a whole lot, but I lost my best friend, and uh, we did everything together. I mean, everything. <laughs> One time there was a hurricane coming in and he and I decided it was a good idea to go out to this island that was just off the intercoastal waterway uh, and it was protected land. And uh, we were going to go to the island and we were going to watch the hurricane come in. A very bad idea. The boat that we went out in belonged to the police department and it was nowhere to be found afterwards. I don't know how we didn't get fired or arrested for that, but we didn't. Uh, We did have to pay back the money for the boat, though. But we just did crazy things. We were best friends, and in this shooting, his life was taken. And so I leave the police department because it is just uh, so much. I mean, just so much calls all the time, and and there was never any any breaks. And at this point in time, uh, you know, I've gotten my bachelor's degree. I'm working on a master's. And... I said I couldn't do it anymore, so I went to the next county over, Pender County, North Carolina. I became a a deputy sheriff and was there about 
oh, maybe a month, month and a half. And the very last call that I received as a sheriff's deputy, I received a call that there was a vehicle traveling west in the eastbound lane. And, you know, it's two or three o'clock in the morning and and you don't really think a whole lot about those things other than probably a drunk driver. And so I remember getting an eastbound lane and just screaming towards where this was taking place. And, and I got within eyesight of this car that was going east in the westbound lane just in time to see a car swerve to miss this small car and hit head on to a semi-trailer and a car or a minivan going at least 75, 80 miles an hour. So when I get over to where the accident took place, I I checked in in the semi-trailer and that guy was okay. In the minivan was a family of four, mom, dad, and two small children. They were all a fatality. And I go over to the car of the person who was going the wrong direction. And it's this young girl, 16 years old, had just gotten her driver's license a week prior. She was headed to Raleigh to meet some friends for the weekend. And uh, she was, to not to be too graphic, uh, she was pinned in her car. Her, they hit hard enough that her engine was in her trunk. And she was pinned at her waist and her legs were not in the car with her, uh, as to not be so graphic. But I knew the moment that that, that pressure was relieved that she was going to, to die. And so I just began to say, you know, hang on. When the ambulance gets here, do we need to call your parents? You know, what do we need to do? And so she said, yes, I want you to call my parents. And, and uh, about the time that she was giving me her parents' number, uh, the car caught on fire. And she began to say, my legs are burning, my legs are burning. And intellectually, I knew that that was impossible. And so I had to make a decision. Do I pull her out of a car and she die? Or do I leave her in the car and she burns to death? And that was probably, and you may be listening today and saying, well, that, that would be a very easy situation for me. But it wasn't at that moment because I was still in the grieving process of losing my best friend. And, and here I am going to be the, the one indicator as to whether she lives or she dies, knowing all the while that she's not going to survive. And so as she began to scream, I remember picking her up, pulling her out of the car, and she immediately died in my arms. That was probably, other than losing my friend, was probably one of the worst days of my life. I, I, I remember everything about that. I remember what she looked like. I remember the smell. I remember the fire. I it's just still so real to me. So then I, I had the duty 
to go tell her parents. So I went and told them. That was very rough. That was very hard for me. And I remember that morning with my uniform covered in blood. I went to the sheriff's office and I told him that I resigned. That I just, I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. And so from there, life got a little crazy. I was 22, 23 years old, and I started doing things that I I thought and others thought was normal behavior for someone my age. I, I began to drink. I began to be very promiscuous. Uh, to the point of being manic within promiscuity. And life just really changed. I didn't have an income. and So me and one of my good friends decided we were going to open a recording studio, and we remodeled, and I, I graduated my master's in music. And just the business didn't take off. And so I thought, well, I will... I will drive to Nashville because surely I can get a job there. And and I did. I went down to Nashville and got a job in a house band for this bar down on the strip playing bass guitar. And I just remember after one set, I, I went out into the to the alleyway and I was just so lost. I was just so, what am I doing here? What is going on in my life? And I really, as cliche as it sounds, I really had one of those come-to-Jesus meetings. So I called my mom, and my my mom sent me enough money for me to get home. And then it was that whole thing of you move back into your home where you grew up, and your parents don't realize that you're, you know, 24, 25 now and not an 8-year-old. And there was just that, that constant, constant tension there. And so finally, I got a job at at a portrait studio, of all things, and made enough money to to move out to, to my own apartment. Uh, the first 90 days that I was with that portrait studio, I sold over a million dollars worth of portraits. And so from there, I, I took a job in security at a, at a high-rise apartment building and in uh, Fort Smith. From security, I graduated to being the bus driver, from the bus driver into maintenance, and from maintenance into the uh, assistant director, and from there to the administrator of the building. And life was good. I was making good money. I lived there on site. Uh, I was now pastoring my first church part-time, bivocationally, and and things were really good. And I, I remember I walked into my apartment one day, and, and in the laundry area was this this drain pipe that came from the roof down. And I remember looking at that drain pipe and going, you know, I could just hang myself and everything would go away. And then I stopped and thought, what in the world did I just say? And And so I called my mom once again. She said, you need to go to the hospital. And I said, I'm not going to the hospital. And I knew intellectually I was working on my PhD. And 
I knew intellectually if I went to the hospital that there'd be a lot of things for me that I couldn't do anymore. And the stigma surrounding that uh, kept me out of the hospital. I went and saw a psychiatrist. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD, uh, diagnosed with uh, bipolar, manic depression, and life changed from there. And I really had to learn that I'm not my diagnosis, that who I am and what I have done doesn't dictate what I do or who I am today. So I started therapy. I continue to this day, and I'm in therapy. So from there, I met my wife. We got engaged, and I left from the building I was the administrator at and went to pastor church full-time in Oklahoma. I opened a practice in Oklahoma, had a very successful practice in Oklahoma. I really felt called to come to another church, and I, I came here to Little Rock in 2000 and 2013. And things changed again. I mean, we moved from a small rural town to the big city, uh, or what I thought was the big city, uh, but actually Little Rock is one of those big little cities uh, where everybody still knows everybody. Everybody's still related to somebody. And so it, it was a major adjustment coming here. The first week that I was here, uh, one of my deacons who was doing some lawn work out in the, the parking lot was robbed at gunpoint. Uh, the church isn't in the best part of town. Uh, it's definitely not in the worst part. But it was such a change of, you know, who does that in a church parking lot? And then over the first year that I was here, uh, the church was broken into four or five times. And I was just thinking, who does that? And so my ability of, of crime prevention and my knowledge of being a police officer really kicked in, and, and, and I began to look at the things that we needed to do, and we implemented those things, and, and, and it worked. So then my wife and I found out that we could not have children, and that was, very, that was a sad day for us, particularly her, because she had always wanted children. And it's not that it's one of us, it's both of us. She can't carry, and, and I'm sterile. And so we started the process of adopting my son, Luke. And let me tell you, that whole process was a nightmare. It truly was. It was a nightmare. Luke was born with aortic stenosis with a, a unicuspid valve. If, if you're familiar with aortic stenosis and the aorta, you know that there is a, a tricuspid, three leaflets that open and close. Well, he was born with only two. When he was born about two, three months later, they did open-heart surgery after doing a balloon procedure that ruptured his aorta. And as a result of that open-heart surgery, he now only had one leaflet uh, that would open and close. And so when we adopted him, we knew that he would have to have open-heart surgery at some point in time in his life. And so we took Luke on what's known as a legal risk, which meant that the rights of the parents had not been terminated. But in, in looking through the case file, the mother had signed over her rights. The father was the aggressor. After Luke had open-heart surgery, they were on their way home, and evidently Luke wasn't very happy. He was you know, screaming, crying what a baby would do in pain. And the father pulled over on the side of the road, 
and took him out of the car, still in the car seat, and he shook him upside down from his left leg, which resulted in an aortic tear, two brain bleeds, and a tib-fib fracture. Five days later, they took him to his regular cardiology appointment, black and blue. They called DHS, found that he had the tib-fib fracture, the aortic tear, and two subdermal hematomas. Uh, they did surgery. They took off a skull plate to drain the hematoma. They cast his little leg, and they did another heart procedure. And this guy, who Luke's biological father, and I hate even using the word father because a man would not treat a child that way. He was fighting for the rights of Luke, and so I knew, I knew that there was no way the courts were going to give him back to his, his biological father. So we took Luke on that legal risk. And about 16 months later, the rights of the father were terminated. And so then we moved for adoption. Well, once we moved for adoption, uh, some other things took place due to my mental health issues. They made us have a psyche valve. They made my wife had a psyche valve, which is the craziest thing in the world. We had, uh, you know, some people call psychiatrists, psychologists, quacks. Well, the guy we went to for the psyche valve, he was a quack. He wrote a lot of things that were disconcerting uh, in his evaluation of me and my wife. And after leaving there, I knew that that was going to be the result. And so, of course, I called DHS and our caseworker and reported that in writing prior to, to having this eval submitted to them. Well, long story short, on July the 17th of 2017, Luke officially became a shepherd. And Luke has changed our life in so many ways, so many ways. Uh, there's just something about holding your own child that makes the world seem okay. Now, many of you may recall in February of 2021, uh, Luke had open heart surgery again to go in and replace that aortic valve. And we were in the midst of COVID, and the hospital would only allow the parents in. And so here we were looking at a, you know, eight to 10 hour surgery. And we were put in this waiting room that had one door, no windows with the TV. And it was probably, uh, you know, 100 square foot. And I remember thinking, Lord, how in the world am I going to make it? Because you couldn't leave. If you, if you left the room, you had to leave the hospital, and then you couldn't get back in. And so I took a lot of work with me. I, I tried to keep myself busy. But every hour on the hour, a surgical nurse would come in and tell you the progress. And then, I, you know, it just seemed like an eternity. And then the surgeon came in and said, he is doing so great, better than we expected. And uh, we were able to go see him. And seeing him in the ICU bed with all of these tubes and IVs and monitors was just one of the most heartbreaking things that I've ever felt. But Luke, our little warrior, as the school says, he's a hero, was to spend 10 days in ICU. On the third day, he was up running around shooting nurses with a Nerf gun. On the fourth day, we were kicked out of the hospital. 
And I, I wasn't ready for that either. Um, but man, he has just, he has overcome so much. Now, in the midst of all this, uh, as many of you may recall, my mother had COVID. She was in the hospital for 161 days. We didn't know if she was going to make it. But everything that I have experienced in my life has, in some way or form, worked for our good. I uh, was in my office one day at the church, and I received this phone call from Memphis, and I I do not answer a phone call if I don't know who it is calling. They can leave me a voicemail. And so this person called, and I sent them a voicemail, no voicemail. They immediately called again. So on the third time that they immediately called back, I answered the phone, and she said her name and that she was from Memphis and that her son had left the school. Uh, her son was 16 years old, had left the school in Memphis and uh, had told the administrators that he was going to meet a pastor who was going to help him kill himself. And I thought, well, why are you calling me? And she said that uh, he had turned his phone off, but the last location that they had was he was in our parking lot. And uh, I had just left the office, and I said, well, I just left there. He's not there. Uh, I pulled up the, the security cameras. He wasn't there. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I just don't think there's anything I can do for you. And this was in the middle of summer. I mean, it was 100 degrees outside. And I hung up the phone, and, and as I hung up the phone, I thought about me, that little boy who was always scared, who was always wanting to run away, who was always trying to hide from the abuse that I had as a child. I thought about those times where I felt all alone, and I just couldn't imagine what this 16-year-old would be going through, that he would come two and a half hours from Memphis to Little Rock. And so I, I called the mom back and I said, hey, I don't know what I can do to help, but she said, well, he said he was coming to meet a preacher who's going to help kill himself. And I said, his phone's turned off. And she said, well, it's not going to voicemail, but he's turned off his location. And I said, okay. I said, give me his cell phone number. And she did. And so I text this young man, and all my text said was, where are you? You're not where you're supposed to be. And he immediately responded back and said, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. I said, no, I'm the pastor of the church where you were at, and you were told to meet me. He said, I am meeting you exactly where I'm supposed to. And I said, well, then send me your location. And he did. We own several acres of property beside the church that are wooded. And he sent me his location, and I found him out in this thicket. I almost stepped on him, as I didn't. It was so thick. And he was sitting there with a 9 millimeter handgun in his hand. And I just began to talk to him and said, you know, uh, why? he said, I was told, the Lord told me to meet you here. And I just remember thinking, how bad messed up is a kid that, one, is ready to end his life, but, two, that believes that the Lord told him to do this. 
And so I started talking to him. And then meanwhile, I was texting his mom saying, I found him. He's alive without him trying to know that he was there. And I sent the mom the location of where we were at. So we were only about 45 minutes away at that point. And I remember telling this boy the story about Abraham in the Bible. If you know about anything about Abraham, Abraham takes his son up the mountain because God told him to sacrifice him. And when he got up to the top of the mountain, he he bound up his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on the top of wood. And then he took his knife to kill his son because that's what God had told him to do. All this is in Genesis chapter two, 22, if you want to read it, by the way. And the minute that Abraham was going to kill his son, there was a lamb in the bulrushes. And I explained to this young man, I said, sometimes God tells us to do something, which I knew God wouldn't have told him to do that. God tells us to do something to test our faith, to see if we're actually trusting him completely. And so through my experience then as a, as a licensed mental health provider, I was able to, in my, my training as a police officer, I was able to get him to give me his gun. And then his mother came through the, through the woods, and I remember saying, hey, do you know who this is? This, this woman's just walking up on us. And he said it was his mother. And I remember the relief in their eyes of his mom and dad when they saw him. Even in this young man that he had faithfully executed what he was supposed to do. But I was able to have a soft heart for him because of the trauma that I had lived through. See, I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. And everything happens for a purpose. And if we would just live each day intentionally to live out our purpose in life, that not only will we find good, but those around us will find good. We, we don't need to focus on all the bad stuff that's happened in our life. We, we need to focus on the good things that have happened in spite of the bad. And it's so easy to get caught up in the, the what-ifs or shoulda, coulda, or any of that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we cannot go back and change things. But we can look forward to the ways that things will and can be different because of the things that we have experienced, whether they be good or whether they be bad. I could go on for days telling you, about how bad situations have turned to good for me. But I'm not going to do that. I just want to simply remind you, it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what you've done. What matters is the first steps that you take today. The changes that you make in your life today you say, I'm no longer that person anymore. These New Year's resolutions, as you take that first step of your resolution to move forward, don't look back on the past. Move today knowing that you're not who you once were. Thank you for listening today to this podcast. And 
So I said, it's all about me. And I hope that in these last few moments uh, that you've learned a little bit more about me and my heart and why I do what I do. And I want to encourage you today to be who you are, not what you've done. I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at thedocbrian.com. The bottom of that website is all of my social media links. Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Thank you again for listening today. Goodbye.